This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We're going to have a very interesting show talking about the dollar, the economy, with Mark Chandler, one of our friends and return guests. Uh, but Professor, it, certainly you've been talking about inflation. We had two important inflation reports this week. I guess looking for your your feedback, reaction to that, and and how you're how you're seeing going into the end of the year yeah absolutely um they were uh i, I think we have a reprieve and uh, that's why i think the market has rallied over the last few days uh the the reports came in at pretty much at expectations um uh, uh the details of some of the consumer price index did show uh building problems <laughs> And one should emphasize that the whole surge of oil and gasoline prices, which are increasing almost at a penny a day now, um, are not going to be uh, in the index until we get next month uh, because uh, gasoline prices were totally flat in uh, September uh, over August. So a lot of the buildup of that inflation is out there. We're beginning to see a little bit more buildup in some of those housing measures that are firmer. I expect those to continue to build. So I expect that... Um, the November and December numbers are going to be much hotter than what we saw uh, in the October uh, report. Uh, nonetheless, uh, the the PCE deflator, um, which follows these reports at the end of the month, will be very mild. Um, and that will give cover to the Federal Reserve, which on November 3rd will meet. There's, there's, there, the, 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 although everyone's talking about the coming inflation, the official data is giving them no reason to accelerate a taper beyond what's expected. So um, although everyone's be talking about what's happening to oil and natural gas and the, the, what's going to go on in, in, in November and December, the hard data is, is not showing that. And ultimately, the Fed defaults to the hard data. Um, uh, and, and so I don't expect an acceleration. So basically, what the market has said is, shoo, okay, not not too bad. This month, I got another month <laughs> of, uh, of reprieve before uh, any hope of uh, maybe an accelerated tightening. That's the biggest fear for the for the market is an accelerated uh, tightening. Uh, I will mention that today we had the retail sales report, which was quite hot. Um, again, as I keep on emphasizing, uh, the retail sales are nominal numbers, which means they are price times quantity, and it isn't separated out. So you don't know exactly how much is inflation, how much is not inflation. I, I read one report that said that they saw car sales were up, but uh, in some sense it could be prices because unit sales haven't actually been up as much. Um, uh, and as a result, one does see that the uh, the 10-year has uh, 
you know, gone up to 157 uh, uh, today. Uh, and because of all the relaxation about uh, infl- inflation and accelerated tightening, we have the VIX down to 16. Now, you know, some people, uh, you know, think a higher VIX is a sign of problem, but I actually see it as a sign of uh, fear and hedging um, and, and, and a short cover potential. When the VIX goes quite a bit lower, uh, now 16 is still high from a long-term perspective, but in recent perspective, that's back into the uncomfortable range. Uh, the amount of hedging, the amount of short interest is low. So I'm not, I'm not calling it complacency by any means, uh, but the VIX is down to 16 right now. We do have Bitcoin just broke above 60,000. It's up almost 5% today. Of course, we're going to be getting ETF futures most likely next week. And whenever there's going to be a, an event like that, there's a lot of buying in front of it and sometimes a sell-off on the news. Um, but uh, I, I'm going to repeat what, what I've said for months. Uh, Bitcoin is the new uh, hedge against the inflation. Uh, in fact, with yields going up, uh, gold is down 1.5% so far today. So uh, the new generation wants Bitcoin as its hedge um, and not gold. Um, oil continues to rise. Uh, WTI is now broken above uh, $82 a barrel. So uh, it, it's interesting on the, the new generation's gold. We're going to be talking, uh, if, if people are on Twitter, I'm going to be on a Spaces event this afternoon at 4 p.m. Uh, you can look for me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz talking about some of those those ETFs and, and how we're thinking about it at, at Wisdom Tree. Um, you know, as, as you think about, you've at first, Professor, I think had long ago, we're, we're, we're skeptical on the currency aspect, but the new generation's gold argument um, any, anything on and on and as you, have you thought about gold over the years and Bitcoin? You know more recently now. Any any or other things to expand on on that on that comment? Yeah, and, and there's, a, there's a there's a couple of things that are going on here. Uh, you know, one talks about what what is the the actual use of Bitcoin? Is Ethereum superior? Uh, as some people say, in terms of the type of coding that might take on. Can Bitcoin really become a currency or just the store of value? Um, uh, uh, now, gold, of course, has the dual purpose. It's, it uses or, is ornamental as you know, where as well as being uh, that that uh, store of value. Although many people just put it away in the safe as coins or or bars. If if, if, if uh, we're talking about a lot of that. Um, now, one should also mention um, the regulatory risk of Bitcoin. Um, um, some of the legislation that uh, is pending in Congress will more tightly regulate Bitcoin. Um, because of its uh, logjam and now is not as sure of going through, this was part of the reconciliation package, um, which is being stalled. I think maybe some of the buying in Bitcoin recently is, oh, we're not going to really have some regulation. I still think the reconciliation will go through with more Bitcoin regulation and reporting. Um, and um, uh, I think that's a negative for Bitcoin, although some people think it, 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 it is not. Nonetheless, uh, in an inflationary environment, it is 
what is perceived to be the, the new gold. And uh, we, we, you know, we, I've been talking about inflation now for well over a year. So, uh, you know, riding that, riding that wave, I mean, that, that, that is still there. I think Bitcoin's risk, not just regulatory, will it ever be used as a store of, of as, as a means of transactions um, that, that can, you know, you can transact as easily and costlessly as you can with uh, electronic transfers. That's what I think ultimately will give its utility. But there's no question the mindset now is very, very positive towards the Bitcoin. Um, we, we talked a little bit. Uh, you, you talked a lot about your high-level views on inflation. I, I, we were talking on a different call this week, and, and you mentioned where we've been in your. You sort of talked about twenty to twenty-five percent cumulative inflation, and, and how much we've had now. Could you just get, uh, update people on, on where you've seen what we've had so far, and, and what might be left to come over the next few years? Right. Well, this year I, I called for last year I called for four to percent inflation this year, and that looks like what it's going to be. <laughs> um, I, I call cumulative, as you're right, 20 to 25. I mean, I think this is going to spread over a number of years, two or three years, as it gets into the into the statistics slowly. Um, and by the way, that's pending. We, next Tuesday, we're going to have the money supply report um, for the month of September. Uh, as I uh, mentioned, you need to control that money supply. Um, to, to slow this down. So the 20 to 25%, I think, is baked in um, and, and is already shown in the speculative markets like housing and commodities. Uh, many of them are, many of it is already there at the 20-25%. And in some of the labor markets and new hires uh, are getting 20% over what they did pre-pandemic. So we're seeing it already in, in some markets. It just has not filtered into all the official um, uh, uh, statistics yet. Um, but, uh, you know, next week we'll be able to report on that, uh, the, whether the money supply um, is being brought under control uh, or not, or whether the Fed is even talking about that issue. All right, Professor, thank you so much for joining us to, to start the show today. Thank you. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks. Have a great weekend. Um, we're going to bring in Mark Chandler, who is a managing director, chief market strategist at Bannock Bourbon Global Forex. Has uh, been covering global capital markets for 30 years. Writes a blog called Mark to Market. Always a, a good friend of the program. Mark, welcome back to Behind the Markets. Thanks. Good to be with you again. Uh, let's let's get your high level worldview. How do you see the the major factors? There's a lot of interesting things happening in some of the currencies now, maybe a little bit more than than before. Um, but I'm just curious to get your high level view of the world before we drive into some specific uh, places. Yeah, sure. So maybe the first place to begin is really uh, just picking up on your conversation with the professor. I sort of have a different view of inflation. I'll tell you what I'm looking at. You know, we just had the September prints for the CPI. And what I did is I took a look at what it was in Q3 at an annualized pace. 5%. Still very elevated. But in Q2, it was close to 9.5%. Again, we're just taking these three months and just annualizing it just to see the pace of it. So I'd say first that inflation, I still would side more at the Federal Reserve, that a lot of the price increases are related to the reopening of the economy, including rents in New York City or other large urban centers, which have jumped. I think that's still mostly reflecting the crash last year. But broadly speaking, 
I think that the biggest challenge is that the Federal Reserve, and this is the other point I'd make about what the market's doing. I think that the dollar is rallied is partly because the market is pricing in a very aggressive Fed tightening next year. So and I know you had said previously that the Federal Reserve, it looks like the market's pricing in a September rate hike. I say yes, but more than that. So here's a big scenario. The Federal Reserve announces its tapering next month and that it finishes it by the middle of next year. Call it June. There's an FOMC meeting in July, the very end of the month. Too close to the end of the month to really look at the Fed Fund's futures contract for July. So I looked at the August contract. And remember that the contract sells at the average effective rate for the month. Right now, that is eight basis points. So I look at the August contract, the August Fed Fund's contract. And you know what? It is pricing in right now 23 basis points. Not eight yeah. basis points, as if rate would be unchanged, but 23 basis points, which turns into about a 60% chance of a hike one month after the Federal Reserve is done with QE. I think that's very aggressive. And then when I look at the end of the year contract, the December contract, it seems to me the market's pricing in about two rate hikes. And what's aggressive about that is the September FOMC meeting, there was only half of the Fed officials said that they didn't think a hike would be appropriate next year. So the market has gone way beyond them. I think this is what's giving the dollar a bit of a lift. Yeah. And I think as the uh, as we get other data, and, I, and the thing that bothers me is that the last three economic downturns have taken place after oil prices have doubled. I'm not talking about last year when oil prices dipped negative, which I'm still trying to figure out how that happened. <laughs> Infinity. Since, the, uh, since the election, since last November's election, oil prices have doubled. And so I'm concerned that we've got a lot of headwinds, fiscal policy, less accommodative, monetary policy going to be less accommodative. We've got this oil headwind. We've got a lot of pent up consumer demand that seems to be uh, expressing itself now, which means it's not going to be there later. Do you think on, on just ending on this where you ended on oil, um, you know, we used to be this big oil importer. Uh, and so you would you would tend to see the dollar have this inverse relationship to oil. And, and now as, as a little bit different um, dynamic, um, sort of much less imports. Do you see the dollar's relationship to oil changing at all? And is, is um, anything going on with the correlations there? Not that I've noticed, but you, you raise a good point. And, and that methodologically, Here's how I come down on it is that, and this is one of the reasons I love the foreign exchange market, average daily turnover is over $6 trillion. What that means is this week alone, we've, covered, we've done enough turnover in the foreign exchange market to cover world trade for a year. So when I look at what drives the currency market, I typically, especially for the major, large, open, diversified economies, I tend not to focus so much on commodities for the currency impact. But for the overall economic impact, I think you're right that even though the U.S. has become a uh, less dependent on foreign oil, you know, the tr- you can't see it in the trade balance. That is to say, the trade deficit is for all practical purposes a record level. And that's what I think is going to be the Achilles heel of the dollar. Uh, perhaps when the economy does really slow down back towards its underlying trend is that we're going to get hit with these twin deficits, large budget deficit, which is partly why the U.S. economy may outperform other countries because we're eating our corn seed in a way. We were, we were heavily in, we were, had fiscal stimulus prior to the pandemic. During the pandemic, of course, we need that support. But that's what concerns me. We're going to be looking at a large record 
trade and current account deficit, and a very large budget deficit. And typically, the U.S. has to have much higher interest rates to uh, to, to uh, adjust. Otherwise, the dollar has to do the has to like shoulder more the burden. One of the, the currencies I've I've always watched, uh, we've talked about on the on the program before, but also I think is having some of the most interesting moves uh, in the market has been the yen. And, and it's sort of a chart on Twitter this morning from uh, somebody that from the Trading View that sort of showed the oil versus yen chart, and sort of the, the zigs and zags. Our last three months have been you know basically you know very very similar, uh, and the yen has been weakening. I mean, sort of uh, I think uh, the dollar's up about six six point seven percent versus the yen over. Last three months or so, um, any any commentary there? Is that also have a any connection to them being an oil importer and, and other things like that? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I I usually in some of my speeches I give, I, I tell people that there's a strong correlation between the number of mortuaries and the number of of uh, churches in a city. It doesn't mean that they're the cause of relationship. Of course, it's, they're correlated to a third thing: population size. And so, similarly with oil. And the yen, I think that it's partly a balance of payments issue, but I don't think that's really what drives the, the yen. You know, Japan, despite what uh, Detroit may say, uh, by complaining about uh, Japanese cars, uh, the fact of the matter is Japan runs a trade deficit more often than not. It runs a current account surplus primarily driven by the income it's getting from its past investments, like coupons, right, from treasuries. So I, I think that what's happening is that oil – and the U.S. 10-year Treasury are very are highly co- correlated. And so the yen is also highly correlated to U.S. Treasury bonds. And I think that is really the connection. What I think is going on is there's a new carry trade. People recognize that the Japanese, as, long, as well with the Swiss, are going to lag in this next monetary cycle. We're going to get Japan's CPI next week, and it's likely to show positive. That is to say that Japan's been experiencing deflation as consumer prices. Uh, for a better part of a year and a half now. And so we might get a positive read, and that's going to be primarily because of oil prices. So I, I think when, I, when I, I think about what drives the yen, I go back to the capital markets and the attractiveness of U.S. treasuries for Japanese investors who don't want to get negative yields at home. Yeah, we're talking with Mark Chandler, currency strategist, Bannockburn Global, Forex. Uh, and, 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 and Mark, it, it, one of the big stories also – it has, has been China, uh, emerging markets, and, and sort of there's been a lot of pressure on, on the Chinese markets. Any sense of what's happening in emerging currencies? You're starting to see some of the emerging market central banks starting to hike rates uh, you know, more aggressively than, say, the developed market peers. Uh, any, any commentary there on, on the emerging markets to start? And I, I, you're right. I mean, the emerging markets have, like, uh, fallen out of favor, and the pressure has really accelerated uh, since the FOMC meeting last month. Uh, you also right. I think that the emerging markets are distinguishing themselves a bit. Who's able to raise interest rates and who's not? We had a, a surprise this week from Chile. Uh, it's kind of an interesting example of what's going on. So Chile was everybody expected them to raise 100 basis points. They raised 125, big move. And you know what? The Chilean peso sold off. Partly because of the politics there, partly because they're uh, let, they're considering allowing. Uh, people to tap into their pension funds again, which would put in more like liquidity into the economy, which already grew by over 10% in Q2. Uh, so the cur- so, and, and despite the higher co- uh, com- uh, copper prices, despite the, the, heightening, the uh, aggressive tightening in policy, the Chilean peso still sold off. 
And so I, I think so that sort of illustrates, I think, uh, why or how uh, interest rate hikes in emerging markets doesn't seem to be offering them much support, uh, including a country like Brazil, which has also been very aggressive. On the other hand, you've got a country like Turkey, where the lira has fallen to new record lows. Uh, they cut interest rates uh, last month, uh, despite having very high inflation. And this week, uh, the president of Turkey dismissed three central bankers. So despite having very high interest rates, among the highest among the emerging markets, the Turkish lira fell to new record lows. So sometimes high interest rates doesn't really protect the currency very much, especially in the emerging markets. That, that is fascinating. We talk about, will the Fed move 25? Will they move 50 in Chile? Boom, 125 in a day. I mean, it is amazing. And then, then they, their currency still sells off. That's a, that's a pretty interesting story down there. Yeah, I think it's just a, that's one of the things I like about the foreign exchange market. You know, when you, when you think about the, uh, what drives the bond market, uh, it probably cites macro factors, inflation, growth, uh, maybe some positioning from time to time. Uh, when it comes to equities, you know, we talk about the earnings and momentum and, and uh, like the things. And, but when it comes to the currency, I think it gives us a much broader, like a window glass picture of the world rather than looking through a keyhole. Do you, do you see any, has the, the volatility out of China and, and the equity markets had an impact on how people, I mean, you're dealing with a lot of different institutional investors, companies who try to hedge their risk, change any uh, activity you see with respect to people's exposure to the Chinese currency? Anything going on there? Uh, you raise a good point. I mean, the, um, the tension between, uh, you know, I, I think most people in the world agree that China is like a bad act on the world stage. But I do think China is wrestling with some of the same things we are, and, the, and that Europe and Japan are, uh, the, the strength of the Internet companies, uh, the role of privacy, uh, the, the increasing concentration of, uh, of wealth, uh, mergers and acquisitions, the concentration of corporate power. And the way China is approaching it, of course, is much different than we are. Um, but I think that uh, ultimately, uh, it's really a challenge for us as investors. What will win out at the end of the day? Is it going to be our dislike for China? Uh, it's bad actor behavior, it's lack of transparency, uh, not really clear on what we're buying when we buy those companies that are listed in the U.S. But the interesting thing to me is that, you know, when, the, uh, uh, when Evergrande was first having its problems, or when the first problems first exploded, I should say, in the world's consciousness, uh, people were talking about another Lehman event. But rather than that happening, what, I've been, what I track is the uh, NASDAQ has this uh, Golden Dragon Index. Uh, which is the Chinese company that traded in the U.S. And that is up the second week in a row. In the past two weeks, it is up almost uh, 9%. So I think here's an example where greed, that is to say, uh, I mean, I'm not making a pejorative comment about it. I'm just saying that people's hunger for profits is outweighing their uh, uncertainty or, or dislike for China. Up, up almost 9% in two weeks, that's not, that's not so bad. And, and the flows have been going towards, I mean, I, I, certainly some of these gross stocks, these mega gross stocks, uh, some of them were down on average 50%. I mean, even just a basket of them are down 50% that I, that I follow. But, you know, I think some of the, what people have gone is maybe we don't want to take single stock risk and they're buying ETFs. I mean, I look at the ETFs for China and there's been huge inflows into China the last, you know, uh, call it three or four months, even with the downturn. Um, so, so it's interesting. I was just curious to see how companies are reacting to their to the currency exposure there. 
Um, in, in terms of the, we haven't talked about the ECB, the, the, the euro, any, you know, that's as another major currency, any expectations they're, they're also facing inflation and maybe more inflation minded than uh, than the Fed in, in terms of their their sort of singular mandate. Uh, any any commentary of what you see coming out of Europe? So, yeah, I think uh, uh, so. I should say first that the euro did make a marginal new low for the year uh, earlier this week. Uh, it has uh, stabilized. Uh, it's struggling at about 116. And so it's kind of a, a, an interesting story what's happened, right, is that last March when the pandemic first struck, the euro fell to about 106, 106 and a half. And then it began to rally. And the day that the euro peaked, the day the dollar bottomed, ironically, is January 6th when, uh, when those events were taking place in Washington. That was the, that was the bottom of the dollar. And the euro has backed, the euro has backed off. They say we've gone from about 123 and a half down to about 116, actually 115 and a half or so. Now, what I'm looking at is that, uh, 114.90, 115 area. That's a, that's about a, uh, a sort of retracement of the big move up. So I, I think that the, uh, you know, we've been, the euro, the euro has been selling off pretty hard, not only since the beginning of September, but really trending lower most of this year. And part of the reason is that the ECB is seen to be well behind uh, the U.S. and other countries in, the, in uh, adjusting monetary policy. Here's what's going on. You know, we're talking about tapering here in the U.S. And the ECB, they were just like we were having a fiscal uh, stimulus before the pandemic. The ECB was involved in QE, buying bonds, before the pandemic. And during the pandemic, they had an emergency uh, facility to buy bonds, and that emergency facility is going to wind down and end in March. And so what Europe is really debating is, is the facility that's going to continue to buy bonds, continue QE after uh, the March, the, when the emergency facility ends. So, uh, so I think that this is what a lot of people are looking at, and, and the way it can be expressed is looking at the interest rate differential, say, between the U.S. and Germany for two-year money. That has gone above eight. Excuse me. That's gone above 100 basis points uh, today, uh, in the last two days, uh, for the first time since last March. That is to say, the U.S. and Germany both borrow, and the U.S. has to pay 100 basis points more than Germany to borrow for two years. And uh, that's also one of the one of the uh, drivers, I think, in the foreign exchange market. Yeah, it, it's sort of very interesting to see. I, I guess as the Fed, the, the the expectation that the Fed is getting a little bit tighter than the ECB. That, that's a, that's an interesting, interesting story there. Um, any other places around the world uh, that that have something you're you're uniquely focused on? Well, you know, the U.S. is still so so much uh, so central that here's what here's what I think we've got to like uh, reconcile. On one hand, as you mentioned, we're seeing some fairly strong earnings. Uh, it, it's early in the season for sure, the earnings season. Uh, there were a lot of banks that reported, but there were other companies that reported too, like Alcoa and uh, 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 Walgreens. And what we're seeing, I think, is uh, right, like strong profits. And how are they reporting strong profits if, on the other hand, we're being told that they're being squeezed because input prices, producer prices, labor costs are rising? How are these companies able to show so much profit? Now, I'll tell you, that's why I, I think that the... Uh, I think that the, what we miss is we really want to have a better measure of wages besides these anecdotal of who's getting raised and how much companies are paying starting workers. What the, the, the economic function we want to look at, I think, is called unit labor costs. And what this includes is not only wages, 
but benefits, and it includes productivity. And the ironic thing about the unit labor costs in the U.S., they fell in the first half of the year. That is to say, counting productivity, when you adjust for labor costs, wages, and benefits, it was cheaper for businesses in the first half than it was in the second half of last year. And so, you know, we, you know, I see people like worrying, worrying that wages are going up. Wages are going up. This is going to be inflationary. It's only inflationary if it's not offset with productivity gains. And what we're seeing is it's being offset with productivity gains up till now. It could be different in the future. Uh, you know, I, I can fully understand that. There's a lot of labor action right now, industrial action, strike activity. But right now, I'd say that uh, let's not cry crocodile tears for companies who are complaining about being squeezed when they're reporting a record or near record profits. That's fascinating. I mean, I think very anecdotally here, personally, like on a personal level, I, I could see, you know, the all crisis affords you an opportunity to sort of rethink how you do things. And I would say my personal productivity, you know, I'm no longer commuting into New York, which was a, at least a two hour day to, you know, door to door. I don't know if they did every day, but that, that commute is gone. We're, we're doing so much more remote. We're, we're talking to many more people in sort of office hours, remote settings, besides getting on a plane and going back and forth. Like I could see how how, you know, companies can find ways to do things differently just because they have to. Uh, and, and some of that, um, you know, it'll be interesting how much of that is now come in or if are they going to still continue to increase their productivity further, you know, or, or is that juice all squeezed now? Yeah, you know, I, I find myself in a sort of similar position. I would, uh, uh, before COVID, I'd be on the road seeing clients uh, uh, a lot. I mean, like traveling every week or almost every week. Yeah. And uh, that's been replaced, of course, with uh, Zoom or uh, WebEx. And uh, uh, so that's also a big cost to businesses, even though it's tax deductible for many of them. It's another cost to businesses that gets taken out of the equation. So I, I'm not as worried as the professor is about uh, runaway inflation or very high inflation for very long. I, I think this is a, an anomaly. It's an unprecedented situation. But I, I think that even if we go back to where we were in 2019, just as the economy has, uh, I, I think that uh, there's a lot of reasons why inflation was low before. And I think that we, I, I think that's the, the bigger threat, I think, as we, as we get into next year, probably more the second half of next year, when the economy in the U.S., but globally, uh, slows down. And we, we lose that fiscal stimulus. We're looking at, I think that next year, Second half of next year, I think we'll be lucky to see much more than two and a half percent growth, and I think that alone will also take some pressure off of uh, these rising costs. Well, that is great, Mark. Uh, any sort of closing thoughts, things you want people to leave the conversation with, and where to find how to stay up to date with your your blog and other commentaries? Sure. So uh, my blog is Mark to Market, Mark with a C, makes my mom happy, and uh, I write something up there almost every day of the week. Uh, on the weekend, I have a macro overview and uh, some price, at, you know, looking at technical analysis. Uh, I, I'm on Twitter at uh, 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 Mark to Mark, uh, Mark Making Sense. That's at Mark Making Sense. Uh, but I'm, I'm, uh, I try to stay uh, informed. And uh, um, I guess if there is something that uh, really uh, I think that is going to have to begin a uh, factor that not people aren't really talking about so much, but I think is going to be increasingly an important factor is what's going to happen next November in the U.S. And right now I was looking at uh, Predicted, uh, their website, that you can wager on political outcomes. And they have 
a clear favorite, that is the wagers, are clearly favoring the Republicans to capture both houses of Congress. And I think that we have to increasingly incorporate that into how the U.S. negotiates, what other countries begin thinking about us. Are we really one presidential election away from leaving the Paris Accord or pulling out of NATO? How much can Biden, how much can Biden talk with uh, President Xi? I know this isn't a cute, they call it a virtual summit now. I think that's what you and I are having, a virtual summit. But uh, I, how seriously can President Xi or Europeans take the U.S. when President Biden could be a lame duck a, a year from now and voted out of office? In two years. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.